Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Since you're all here, I think I'll just go ahead. The brother's on his way. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in wa ba'd. We're starting with the test that was put up regarding the sirah. Uh, we read a few pages from uh, the Sealed Nectar, but we also read uh, several pages from another source specifically giving the, the story of Thumama bin Ufaz and Hanafi because it was not done justice in the Sealed Nectar. So I want to try to remember some of those details that weren't in the book. So if you only used the book for uh, the test, then you might not have remembered them. Who was Thumama bin Ufaz and Hanafi? And what did he plan to do to the Prophet Uh Please answer by voice or typing, somebody. Okay, sound like him. He was a, a disbeliever, and uh, he planned to assassinate the Prophet. Okay, let's ask a few more questions. Um, oh, by the way, no, the recitation will be 10, inshallah, not 10.30. This time that we're at right now, this is where we're going to start the sirah and the tafsir. The, the recitation will be... Uh, 34 minutes ago, uh, so to speak. Okay, uh, Sumanu bin Ufal, uh, where was he from? Yes, Rasan. He was from the area of Musaylama and Kazab. There was a lot of enmity toward the Muslims coming from that area, uh, especially personified in Musaylama himself, who claimed to be uh, a prophet uh, other than Muhammad. So he, he was a chief or a ruler from that area who had a lot of influence. Okay, let's move on because there are more questions about him already on the test. What did the companions do to this man and what questions did he ask the Prophet wasallam as a result? Okay, before tying him to a pole, how did, how did they get possession of him in the first place? They got him by mistake. They had captured some, uh, some of the men and then they had got him by mistake as companions. They didn't even know who he was. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly a mistake. Uh, they just caught somebody skulking around the outskirts church of Medina, um, but in mistake in the sense that they didn't know who they had actually captured. Um, okay, and then we, we went, somebody, Quran was in, already put up the rest of it. Uh, they brought him to the masjid and tied him up, waiting for the Prophet Sallallahu to come and decide what to do with him. And uh, how did the Prophet Sallallahu treat him after that, and what did he do after that? He let him go, and uh, he became Muslim after that. Okay, but I'm looking for before he let him go. During that time when the Prophet would come back each time and the man would say what somebody already typed up above, that if you want to just kill someone of your enemies, you've got a big one, that roughly translated. And if you would like to be uh, gracious or generous, then let it be with a grateful man. And if you ask for money, let it be. If you want money, let it be from a generous man. But before that, during that time, in between those three times when he made that statement, how was he treated by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was treated with respect and dignity. Yes, and in fact, the Prophet sallam, the very first thing when he realized who he was, he ordered that um, food be prepared from his house and given to him, and he continued to feed him and uh, take care of him during that time, even though he's tied up, but he was taking good care of him uh, during that time. And, and what, what lesson do we learn from that? Okay, excellent, that a person can change, but and also so that though this person came from the heart of a, a land full of enmity uh, for Islam and the Muslims, uh, we could say the lesson here is the benefit of the doubt. All right, yes, everybody should be treated fairly, even an enemy, and that, you know, no, no assumption is made because of where you come from and what might have happened in the past. Uh, he's being given every benefit of the doubt and to give him a chance. And then at the same time, he's in a sense almost testing Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, testing his, his chivalry and his nobility by telling him what he told him. And the Prophet sallam, he got the message that the man is telling him that, you know, if you're going to be gracious, let it be to someone who's grateful. So he's implying that, you know, he's going to be grateful if Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is that magnanimous, you know, to forgive him uh, in spite of what he had plotted against Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. These are all, you know, means of da'wah. So this man, in fact, uh, you know, meant what he said. He didn't say, you know, let me go and I'll join your religion and I'll embrace Islam. Uh, but he just, it was kind of like a test. You know, they're all 
exposing their character, but not necessarily their specific intention. So three, was Sumama killed? If not, what happened to him? We said that after he made the same statement to the Prophet wasallam, three times, the Prophet ordered him released. Not, he hadn't embraced Islam at that point. He just ordered his release to see what would happen. And he went a short uh, ways away and washed himself and uh, came back and became a Muslim. And then uh, he had another intention when he was on his way there. He was going to go to make the Umrah of the uh, Jahiliyyah. And what did he ask the Prophet Islam after that? Well, the Prophet Islam told him to proceed with his Umrah, but in what way? Okay. Um, the Prophet Islam explained to him the Islamic Umrah. And part of that Umrah is the Talbiyah. Labbaik Allahumma labbaik. Labbaik ala sharika laka labbaik. So the Talbiyah of the Muslims is definitely uh, strange and antithetical uh, to the Mushrikeen because it declares the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uh, rejects all partners. So, uh, Sumama headed for Mecca and when he got to the, you know, the Miqat or whatever, and when he got to the vicinity of Mecca, he began making this Talbiyah. And uh, what is special about the Talbiyah of Sumama ibn Uthal? It's not in the field next year. I had some other material last week. So if anybody was at the uh, lecture last week, uh, they may recall this issue, inshallah. If not, we'll give it up. So anybody, if you got it, speak up so we don't take too long with it. Okay, it is said that Sumama ibn Uthal was the first human being ever to make the Islamic Talbiyah in Mecca. Because he just was explained by the Prophet Islam, no one had made this Talbiyah. So he came into Mecca saying, Labaik Allahumma Labaik, in the loudest voice possible. And does anybody remember what happened after that? Okay, yes, Quraysh came out and said, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, you're, you're a leader of the Mushrikeen and here you come talking, La Sharika Allah. Allah has no partner. Have you gone crazy? You've given in to this, uh, this new nonsense? And uh, they were threatening, of course. So what did uh, Thumama say to them? Yes, he was, as I said, a man of huge influence in Yamama, the area around Riyadh, what is now Riyadh in, in central uh, Saudi Arabia. And the Meccans were apparently dependent on, uh, on that area at that time for uh, some of their food, for their grain. And he told them that they would not get any uh, grain from Yamama. Uh, in, in fact, he didn't just say if they did any harm to him, he said, uh, two versions. One is until the Prophet Asatfam permits it, and the other version is until they accept uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And what happened after that to the people of Mecca because of this? Yes, he indeed did fulfill his promise. And what were the effects on the people of Mecca? Takers, uh, it was severe. They, it caused a sort of a famine in Mecca, even to the point that it was feared some people would starve to death. And uh, what did the people of Mecca do then? And what was their argument, if anybody remembers? They went to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam with their predicament. And does anybody remember the argument that they used with the Prophet Someone here said they, that he asked the Prophet to tell them to give him food. Uh, the Prophet interceded at the Meccans earnestly, but I don't know what he said. Okay, their argument was the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And in the city of Hudaybiyah, there's a mention of maintaining ties of family, maintaining ties of blood. And they used this and went to the Prophet ﷺ and said, how is this maintaining ties of blood when these people are starving us? These people are under Samama in, in, in Yamama are withholding food and starving us. That's not a direct argument, but it's an argument. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ did not order Samama to do this. He did it himself. Um, but when they went to him with the, with the Sulh of Hudaybiyah, with this treaty that was between them, and said, you know, starving us is not a good manifestation of maintaining ties of blood or maintaining family ties, and then the Prophet Assalam, uh, told Fulmama to no longer withhold the food from the people of Mecca. Uh, who was Rakasha bin Mihsan? I think we're back to stuff that's straight out of the book now, so uh, we should be able to do this. Was dispatched to a place called Ghamir, or Ghamir, I'm not sure which one, it's in English.
And this is one of those cases where uh, the enemy saw the Muslims coming and fled. Uh, since the time of Ahzab, uh, when the Muslims held firm despite huge odds, their uh, reputation was very much up in the, in the peninsula, and many times it only took their approach for, uh, for different groups to flee and, and leave behind their belongings. Number five, what was the invasion of Al-Khabt, diluted yogurt? took place in the year 8, this is before the Hudaybiyah Treaty. Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah led 300 horsemen to observe a caravan belonging to Quraysh. They ran out of food and all they had to, to drink was this yogurt. And that's where the name comes from. One of them was slaughtering camels, but Abu Ubaid, the leader of the campaign, prohibited him from doing so, presumably because they needed the camels for uh, military reasons. The sea was generous and presented them with a sperm whale, so rich in fat that they subsisted on it for half a month. Now, apparently this was before the Prophet ﷺ had taught them that everything out of the ocean was halal. So probably they ate the sperm whale based on the concept of necessity, that, you know, they had no food. When they came back, they narrated the story to the Prophet ﷺ, who then informed them, that this was a provision from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that everything from the ocean uh, is halal. And he also asked to be, sure, be given some of the meat. Who was Abu al-As and what was his fate? Somebody? He was the uh, prophet's um, son-in-law. And um, he, he had went out to... Um, I'm going to just write a tweet what I got right here. I thought he was a relative of the Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, a caravan that had that he had led was intercepted and he escaped and he um went to his to his wife's house, Zenab, who was the uh, Prophet's daughter, and um he had her beg the Prophet to um have him give him his wealth back and the Prophet did that and he uh became Muslim and with, got back with his wife. And uh, the book also mentions that uh, this was before the prohibition of uh, Muslim women being married to uh, Kafir men, which which happened after that. And also there's another thing in this um, little fiqh ruling that when somebody is married, quote-unquote, upon another mullah, upon another uh, tradition or another law, and then uh, both of them are Muslim, uh, they can they can continue on that same contract that was before. They do they do not have to go and specifically have a, a Islamic uh, nikah an Islamic marriage ceremony. Uh, the the old one can simply continue. Uh, marriage is something, although it varies in its details, is something universal to mankind. There's more than one example from the Sunnah where people who were married as mushrikeen uh, became Muslim. They didn't have to remarry. But if um, if one of them becomes Muslim and the other is Mushrik, uh, then their marriage is null and void uh, immediately, and they cannot persist in that state. This is a touching story. That is a touching story of Zainab and her husband. You want to elaborate on that, uh, Um Sami? Okay, moving on. Let's uh, read a few more pages from our book here. We're about three quarters full. Uh, finished. We'll actually finish this book, inshallah. We're on page 327. Uh, Bani Lahyan invasion. Bani Lahyan had acted treacherously toward ten of the Prophet's companions and had them hanged. And we read this story earlier. Their habitation being situated deep in the heart of Hijaz and on the borders of Mecca, uh, the, the, the Prophet ﷺ had held back and deemed it unwise to penetrate that deep and come close to the, the greatest of their enemies, the Quraysh. However, when the power of the Confederates collapsed after the Battle of the Trench, and they began to slacken and resign to the current unfavorable balance of power, in other words, they began to recognize uh, the power of the Muslims militarily in the region, the Prophet ﷺ seized this rare opportunity and decided that it was time to take revenge on Bani Lahyan. He set out in Rabi'l Awwal, or Jumal al-Ula, in the sixth year of the Hijrah, at the head of 200 Muslim fighters. 
and made a, a, a false move of heading towards Syria, then changed route toward Batan Gharan, the scene of the companion's tragedy, where the ten companions were murdered by Bani Lahyan, and invoked Allah's mercy upon them. Uh, this little trick didn't actually work because the news reached them anyway that the Muslims were marching in their direction. And they immediately fled to the mountaintops and remained out of reach. On his way back, the Prophet ﷺ dispatched a group of ten horsemen to a place called Qura al-Ghamim in the vicinity of the habitations of Quraysh in order to indirectly confirm his growing military power. All of these skirmishes took 14 days, after which he headed back to Medina. So the, the Muslims were gradually establishing their, themselves as a force to be reckoned with after, you know, we read a few weeks ago the story of how uh, basically people were just toying with the Muslims in various areas uh, where they would say, we want some teachers to become teachers of Islam and then murder them when they got there. And uh, so this is all really a fight for survival. Uh, and, and even though the Prophet Sallallahu is sending out, and as I read, uh, don't be confused by the fact and, and that this is actually, it's really self-defense. In fact, it's more than self-defense. It's, uh, it's a struggle against annihilation. Because between the, the, the Quraysh in Mecca and the Jewish fifth element in Medina and the fickle Bedouin tribes who just always follow their own interests, uh, there was a scheme afoot, a definite scheme afoot to exterminate the Muslims, to commit genocide and just wipe them off the face of the earth and loot Medina, and presumably Medina would fall back into the hands of the Yahud, and whatever was left of the Aus and the Khazraj who were still Mushrikeen, and restore the status quo. And Mecca would be back to the status quo of idol worship. That was what was being planned. And so these Ghazalats, even if they were, you know, on the face of it, aggressive, the Prophet was sending out expeditions, they were actually defensive, and they were a fight for the very survival of the new Muslim Ummah. Now, expeditions and delegations continued. A, pl- a platoon led by Al-Qash ibn al-Muhsan was dispatched to a face- place called Ghamir, inhabited by Bani Asad in the year 6 of the Hijra. The enemy immediately fled, leaving behind 200 camels which were taken to Medina. Platoon led by Muhammad ibn Maslama set out towards the habitation of Bani Sa'alaba in Zul Qassa. But a hundred men of the enemy ambushed and killed all of them except Muhammad ibn Maslama who managed to escape but was badly wounded. In retaliation against Bani Sa'alaba, Abu Ubaid ibn al-Jarrah at the head of forty men was dispatched back to Zul Qassa. They walked that night and took the enemy by surprise in the morning. Again, they fled to the mountains except one who was injured and later embraced Islam. A lot of spoils fell to their lot in that particular incident. A platoon under the leadership of Zayd ibn Haritha was sent to Al-Jumum, the habitation of Bani Salim in the same year. A woman from Bani Muzayna showed them the way to the enemy's camp. There the Muslims took some captives and gained a lot of spoils. Later on, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam granted the woman her freedom and married her to one of the Muslims. Zayd ibn Haritha in Jumad al-Ula 6 of the Hijra, at the head of 170 horsemen, set out to a place called Al-Ais, intercepted a caravan of Quraysh led by Abu al-As. Here's the story we had in the question. I guess the questions got a little bit ahead of the reading here. The Prophet's relative and also his son-in-law and looted their camels. Abu al-As escaped and took refuge in Zainab's house, which was his wife and the daughter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He begged her to ask the Prophet for restitution of his wealth. <coughs> the Prophet recommended, but did not order that the people do that. In other words, the Prophet sallallahu was not going to change the ruling, but because this is the right of the fighters. And then when the fighters went out in jihad, and they gained some spoils, a fifth of it belonged to the Muslim treasury, and four-fifths of it belonged to the fighters. They divided amongst themselves. So the Prophet ﷺ was not going to cheat them out of what was rightfully theirs, according to the Sharia, but suggested to them that it would be good to, and, and also that, that would be a source of hitna, because people could say, it's because it's your relative, it's because your son-in-law, you're depriving the fighters of what they knew to be theirs. 
And so the Prophet Sallallahu in his wisdom avoided all that by merely suggesting that they should, uh, you know, restore his wealth to him, and uh, they did it immediately. They immediately gave the man back all his wealth. He went back to Mecca, gave over the trust to those entitled to them, embraced Islam, and immigrated to Medina, where the Prophet Sallallahu reunited him with his wife Zainab after three and a half years of their first marriage. The verse relating to prohibition of marriage between Muslim women and disbelievers had not yet been revealed. In Jumada Sania the same year, the next month in other words, Zayd at the head of 15 men raided Bani Thalaba and captured 20 of their camels, but the people had fled. In Rezab of the same year, Zayd at the head of 12 men set out to a place called Wadi al-Qura in a reconnaissance mission to explore the movements of the enemy. The people there attacked the Muslims, killed nine of them, and, while the rest, including Zaydim and Haritha, managed to escape. That's nine out of twelve, so only three people escaped. The invasion of Al-Khabt, diluted yogurt, took place in year eight of the Hijrah, before the Hudaybiyah Treaty. Ibn Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah led 300 horsemen to observe a caravan belonging to Quraysh. Okay, we kind of covered that when we answered the question, and they found the, the whale, and that's how they survived. This campaign came chronologically prior to Al-Hudaybiyah because of and after which Muslims stopped intercepting caravans. Okay, once they had the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, um, then all of this stopped. They, they, they had a treaty, so they were no longer permitted to go out and intercept uh, uh, caravans. Oh, Zayn and Zainab. Okay. I thought you said, all right. It's not. Uh, yeah, also a source of fitness, that story, among many quarters. Let's see, should we start another section or move on? Let's just start the next section. I don't know how far we'll get. Bani al-Mustaliq, al-Muraisi, Ghazwa in the Sha'ban of the year 6. The military did not assume full dimensions. This ghazwa had certain implications and brought about a state of turbulence within the Islamic nation and resulted in disgrace, disgracefulness to close, to close the hypocrites. Moreover, it entailed enactment of consolidating legislation that attached an impression of nobility, dignity, and purity of soul to the Muslim community. Well, this guy uses the wrong words, but uh, <laughs> too many big words. Anyway, in this incident, uh, we're going to find the exposing of the uh, munafiqeen and the purification of the ranks of the Muslims. News reached the Prophet ﷺ on the 2nd of Sha'ban to the effect that the chief of Bani Mustalik, Al-Harith ibn Dirar, had mobilized his men, along with some Bedouins, to attack Medina. Burayr ibn Hasib al-Aslami was immediately dispatched to verify the reports. He had some words with Abi Dirab, who confirmed his intention of war. He later sent a reconnoitering team to explore the positions of the Muslims, but he was captured and killed. The Prophet the reconnoiter, not Abu Dirab, I think. The Prophet summoned his men and ordered them to prepare for war. Before leaving, Zaydim and Haritha was mandated to see to the affairs of Medina and dispose them. On hearing the advent of the Muslims, the disbelievers got frightened, and the Arabs going with them defected. Not when they say Arabs, they mean Bedouins. So the translator kind of messed up here. Um, yeah, I think so too. About the Zayd issue, I just dropped that. Um, on hearing the advent of the Muslims, the disbelievers got frightened, and the Bedouins going with them defected and ran away for their lives. This is the, the fira. This is the sunnah of the Bedouins. Uh, always, since the Jahiliyyah, the Islam, and until today, in uh, wars that took place in the Jazeera in the last century, this has always been, in fact, when the British wanted to have influence over the course of events in the Arabian Peninsula, they did it with trunks of gold. And it was actually very easy for them. They just brought trunks of gold and gave it to this tribe, and all of a sudden they're fighting with whoever they want them to fight with. That's always been the sunnah of the Bedouins in the desert. Abu Bakr was entrusted with the banner of the emigrants, and that of the Ansar was given to Sa'd ibn Ubadah. <coughs> the two armies were stationed at a, wall, at a well called Muraisi. Arrow shooting went on for an hour, 
And then the Muslims rushed and engaged with the enemy in a battle that ended in full victory for the Muslims. Some men were killed, women and children of the disbelievers taken as captives, and a lot of spoils fell to the lot of the Muslims. Only one Muslim was killed by mistake, by an Ansari. Among the captives was Juwaidiyah, daughter of Al-Hadis, chief of the Mushrikeen. The Prophet married her, and in compensation, the Muslims had to free 100 others of the enemy prisoners, and they all embraced Islam, and they came to be called the in-laws of the Prophet. The treacherous role of the hypocrites prior to Bani Mustalaq, the battle of Bani Mustalaq. Abdullah ibn Ubay, the head of the hypocrites, was full of hatred for Islam. And the Muslims, because he believed that the Prophet ﷺ had dispossessed him of his leadership over Al-Aus and Al-Khazraj, two clans had already agreed on the prophethood of Muhammad ﷺ. But prior to that, they had agreed on him as their chief. So before the Muslims came to Medina, Abdullah ibn Ubay uh, was looking forward to being, if you will, if you will, the king of Medina. That he would be over both of these tribes. And that's, that's something very new because the tribes were separate. Remember we had five parties in Medina. We had two Arab tribes and three Jewish tribes. And they were always fighting all kinds of different wars. And uh, there was a, the, the Arabs never had alliance with each other. They, each of them had alliance with different uh, Jewish tribes and that's how they were, they were fighting all these wars. Um, so I guess shortly before Islam came, the two Arab tribes were trying to unite. And uh, Abdullah ibn Ubay was going to be the king. He was going to be the one over the, the two Arab tribes, which may have just changed all the balance in Medina, because the two Arab tribes got together, they would probably be like, bigger than the three Jewish tribes, or at least equal to them, able to take them on, and uh, there might have been a big change. So he was looking forward to that, and in his mind, you know, this was all messed up by the coming of Muhammad and Islam to Medina, where he had no real... Uh, prominence, especially because he continued to, with his hatred, and even though he eventually, he, after a while, took shahada, um, it was not a real shahada, and he still harbored this hatred, uh, toward what had happened to him, in his mind. Abdullah's hatred had appeared before he feigned his Islam. Following the Battle of Badr, he made pretensions of being a Muslim, but deep at heart, he remained the terrible enemy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of his messenger and of all the believers in general. His sole target had always been to sow the seeds of dissension among the Muslims and undermine the cause of the new deen. His treacherous behavior could be witnessed everywhere but was strikingly evident in his wicked attempt at creating a state of confusion and disorder among the Muslims at the Battle of Uhud. We all know about that where they, they bailed at the last minute right when the battle was about to start and took away a huge number of people. His hypocrisy and deceit assumed serious and ugly dimensions when he used to stand up among the Muslims. Listen to this, listen to this. Shortly before the Prophet's Friday khutbah and mockingly say to them, This is the messenger of Allah who has honored you with Allah, so you have to support, obey, and listen to him. And then he would sit down. No, he didn't say anything false, but what business is it of his to say that? <laughs> And, and, and this is the character that you see. You know, you see people doing this kind of thing. Well, they're saying something, you know, by the letter of it is correct, but it's just incorrect the way they're doing it and the, the timing or whatever. Timing. Yeah, it, it, was, it was not his business to say that. <laughs> the Muslims are sitting there waiting for khutbah of Rasulullah. They know very well that this is Rasulullah and that they should support him and obey him. It's meaningless to say this and it was said... Yeah, it's very he did the same following the Uhud battle on Duma. He was so rude and presumptuous that his words smacked unmistakingly of deep-rooted hatred, so that some of the Muslims took him by his clothing, reproachingly, and silenced him. He immediately left, subhanAllah, he left the Duma, uttering rude and mocking words. An Ansari met him at the masjid gate and ordered him to return and begged the Prophet for forgiveness, but he retorted that he never wanted to ask him for that. He, moreover, conducted clandestine contact with Bani Nadir, another of the Jewish tribes, encouraging them to make alliance with him and promising support for them. All of this in his ceaseless efforts in the long process of conspiracy and intrigue hashed against the Muslims. Allah's words as regards his treacherous actions 
and, attempt, and attempts during the Battle of the Trench came to testify quite clearly to this mode of hypocrisy. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم وَذْ يَقُولُ الْمُنَافِقُونَ وَالَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٍ And when the hypocrites and those in, in whose heart is disease say مَا وَعَدَنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ إِلَّا غُرُورًا Allah and His Messenger have not promised us anything but delusion. In other words, He's trying to break the will of the Muslims when they saw you know, how great the, of the opposing forces were. The Battle of Ahzab was a terrifying thing. You know, there's, a, it's, it's what, 3,000 of them and 10,000 troops from Quraysh, Yahud, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Bedouins, you know, all ranged against them in their hometown, you know, attacking them in their hometown. So it was a fearful event. So, uh, the, the hypocrites were there in their midst, trying to, you know, break their will and cause confusion. The verse goes on in the same context to describe the hypocrite as a coward and a defeated. He is a liar and has no regard for pledges solemnly made. He is treacherous, disloyal, and perfidious. He is niggardly and greedy. In short, he is the complete antithesis of the believer. And Allah goes, here's what Allah said after that. يَحْسَبُونَ الْأَحْزَابَ لَمْ يَذْهَبُوا They think that the confederates, those vowed against the Muslims, have not yet withdrawn. When يَأْتِ الْأَحْزَابُ يَوَدُّ لَوْ أَنَّهُمْ بَادُونَ فِي الْأَعْرَابِ And if the uh, confederates were to return, they wish that they could just be wandering in the desert with the Bedouins, يَسْأَلُونَ عَنْ أَنْبَائِكُمْ Asking about your news. وَلَوْ كَانُوا فِيكُمْ مَا قَاتَلُوا إِلَّا قَلِيلًا And if they were among you, they would not have fought except for very little. So Allah SWT is condemning their cowardice that, you know, though they have all these plots and plans and schemes, when confronted with a real enemy, they would wish to be out in the desert, far from everything, asking about the news. All enemies of Islam, from the Jews, the hypocrites, and the mushrikeen, did acknowledge that Islam had the upper hand, not because of material superiority. They didn't have superiority of numbers or weapons or anything else. But it was rather due to the noble values, refined ethics, and high attributes that imbued the Muslim community and whoever was attached to it. The enemies of Islam were already aware of that flood of light derived wholly from the person of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who always stood as an excellent example for men to copy and follow. The enemies of Islam, after steering the course of feudal warfare against the new religion for five years, came to realize fully that exterminating the Muslims is not possible in the battlefield. So they resorted to other tactics. <coughs> they, being gossip mongers, decided to launch a widespread propaganda campaign, campaign aiming at slandering the person of the Prophet ﷺ, which of course continues until today. I get emails every second or third day from some fool, some of them with Muslim names, uh, just, just rewriting the theater of Rasulullah, and they don't even bother to present any evidence. You know, they, they talk about the story of Zainab, how he lusted after another man's wife, which is all baloney, and they just make up all kinds of things, and, uh, you know, it's, it's still going on. They decided to explain to the Prophet's person in the most sensitive area of Arabian life, namely ethics and tradition. Following the Battle of Ahzab, the Prophet wasallam married Zainab bint Jash, after her marriage with Zayd ibn Haritha, his adopted son, had broken up. They seized this opportunity and began to circulate idle talk against the Prophet <coughs> in Arabia, depending on a tradition among the desert Arabs that prohibits a marriage with an adopted, adopted son's divorcee. In fact, Allah says, states very clearly in the Quran that uh, part of the wisdom of this event was to show that in the Sharia, this is not forbidden. It was something, it's mentioned specifically in the Quran. It was something that the Arabs didn't do. Alright? That uh, Allah made it clear that this is not forbidden in Islam. And then, you know, there are other things like that. There, there are peoples who, you know, would never marry their first cousin and view that as halal. Whereas in Allah's Sharia, it's halal. Um, okay. They alleged that his marriage would be considered a heinous sin. They also based their malicious propaganda on the fact that Zainab was his fifth wife, whereas wives in Islam were strictly limited to four. 
Hence, the validity of this marriage was in doubt according to them. These rumors and gossip had a negative impact on the morale of some weak-hearted Muslims until the de- decisive verses were revealed, acquitting the Prophet ﷺ and invalidating all those ill designs and schemes. Ya ayyuhal taqillaha wa la al-kafirina wal munafiqeen. O Prophet, keep your duty to Allah and obey not the disbelievers nor the hypocrites. Inna Allah kana aliman hakima. Verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is knowing and wise. Okay. The wicked role they played in the course of the Ghazwa of Bani Mustalaf. During this Ghazwa, which means expedition or battle, the hypocrites almost managed to create a sort of discord among the Muslims themselves, coupled with a serious and ugly slander against the Prophet In short, their behavior was an authentic translation of the words of Allah. If they go out with you, they would add it, they would add nothing to you but disorder. And they would spread uh, uh, discord among you. Uh, <coughs> seeking to create sedition among you. A quarrel was about to break out between the Ansar and the Muhajireen on account of plots and evil intentions designed by the hypocrites. They're trying to bring back the Jahiliyyah, uh, the tribalism. The Prophet ﷺ rebuked them, describing their misbehavior as something from the Jahiliyyah. They, hypocrites, with Abdullah ibn Ubayr at their head, were furious at this defeat from the Muslims and, and, and showed hostile plans and vicious intrigues woven behind closed doors. And then they said, the most honorable will expel the lowliest out of Medina when we go back. And they said, they the Muslims have outnumbered and shared us our land. If you fatten a dog, it will eat you. When this talk was reported to the Prophet ﷺ, Omar, his companion, asked for permission to kill Obey. The Prophet ﷺ turned down his proposal on the grounds that it did not become a prophet to be accused of killing his own people or those closest to him. He, on the contrary, <coughs> in an unexpected move, asked Omar to announce departure. He marched with his men for two days until the sun grew too hot. They stopped and fell asleep, a clever attempt at diverting his people's attention from the previous event. Abdullah's son heard of the vile words of his father, and this is his own son. And as the party reached Medina, he drew his sword on his own father and barred his entry into town until he had confessed and declared that he himself was the lowliest of the citizens of Medina. <laughs> his son, mashallah. And the prophet was the most honorable of them. Thus the boast recoiled on his head. It was also reported that the son was ready to kill his father if the, if the prophet had wanted him to. The Slander Affair, Hadith al-Ifq. This extremely painful incident took place on the Prophet's return from the expedition against Bani Mustalaq, the same expedition. The Muslim army had to halt for a night at a place, a short distance from Medina. In this expedition, the Prophet was accompanied by his wife, Aisha. As it so happened, Aisha went out some distance from the camp to attend to the call of nature. When she returned, she discovered that she had dropped her necklace somewhere. The necklace itself was of no great value, but it was a loan from a friend. Aisha, anha, went out again to search for it. On her return to her grief and mortification, the army had already marched away with the camel she was riding. Her attendants had thought that she was in the, in the you know, the thing on top, the khawdaj, the litter, because... She was then so thin and young and light of weight. Notice the difference. In her helplessness, she sat down and began to cry until sleep overpowered her. Safwan ibn Mu'attal, an immigrant who was coming in the rear, recognized her as he had seen her before the verse uh, about the veil and brought her on his camel to Medina without saying a single word to her, himself walking behind the animal. The hypocrites of Medina, led by Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, 
sought to make capital out of this incident and spread a malicious scandal against Aisha radiallahu anha. <coughs> and unfortunately, some of the Muslims also became involved in it. On arrival in Medina, the Prophet sallallahu held counsel with his companions who pronounced different opinions ranging from divorce to not divorce, to keeping her. The incident almost roused a fight between two rival factions, Al-Aus and Al-Khazraj. <clears throat> but the Prophet's intervention silenced both parties on the spot. Aisha was unaware of the rumors being circulated, but she fell ill and was confined to bed for a month. On recovering, she heard of the slander and took permission to go and see her parents, seeking authentic news. She then burst into tears and stayed for two days and one sleepless night, <clears throat> constantly weeping to such an extent that she felt her liver was about to tear open. The Prophet ﷺ visited her in that situation. And after testifying to the oneness of Allah, he told her, If you are innocent, Allah will acquit you. And otherwise, you have to beg for his forgiveness and pardon. <clears throat> she stopped weeping and asked her parents to speak for her, but they had nothing to say. So she said, so she herself took the initiative and said, Should I tell you that I am innocent? And Allah knows that I am surely innocent. You will not believe me. And if I were to admit something of which Allah knows I am innocent, you will believe me. Then I will have nothing to make recourse to except the words of the father of Yusuf who said, فَصَبْرٌ جَمِيلٌ وَاللَّهُ الْمُسْتَعَانُ عَلَى مَا تَنْفِكُونَ So for me, there is only patience. And Allah alone if he whose help can be sought against that which they say. She then turned away and lay down. At that decisive moment, the revelation came, acquitting Aisha radiallahu anha of all the slanderous talk fabricated in this concern. Aisha, of course, was wholeheartedly joyful and praised Allah thankfully. Allah's words in this regard went as follows. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ جَاءُوا بِالْإِفْكِ أَصْبَتُوا مِنْكُمْ Verily, those who brought forth this slander are a group amongst you. This is an interesting event. What do, what do we see in this event? Now, what, are, what are some lessons from this? I mean, it's a little shocking to a naive person that the Prophet, when hearing these, these rumors, stood back. You know, he, he, well, maybe it was Allah's decree also that she got sick at that time. But he was not with Aisha, you know, for a month. And he didn't go to Aisha and say, you know, I know you and I know you couldn't have done this. He went to Aisha and said, you know, if you're innocent, Allah will bring it out. And if you're not, you have to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a lesson buried in this. Alright? Well, well, don't jump to conclusions, but also avoid every situation of doubt. All right, this is remindful of the story of the Prophet Sallallahu when he was walking with one of his wives in the dark, and another Sahabi was on the other side of the street or whatever, some distance, that could see that it was Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and could see that it was a woman that he was walking with. And Muhammad Sallallahu the Prophet, shouted out. It is I, Muhammad, and this is so-and-so, my wife. And the companion was shocked. And he says, you know, I said, I never would have thought anything else. You don't have to tell me that. All right? And, and the lesson in this is that, you know, Muslims have to avoid, you know, all situations of doubt. All, all appearances that aren't correct. All right? And that is why, you know, that is why we maintain, you know, the mahram. Uh, being with a woman, that's why we maintain the dignity of a woman, you know, in her house, not going here and there and being out somewhere alone where, where anything could happen. Because, you know, because, because we never know these things. We want to avoid uh, this absolutely and we want to avoid any appearance of it or any possibility of it. I mean, at first reading it can seem a little shocking that uh, Rasulullah didn't immediately stand up for Aisha uh, even her parents didn't stand up for her. 
it's part, of, it's part of the great character of Aisha and the greatness of Aisha. Uh, but when confronted with something like this, they, they just kept silent. So, we don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really kind of amazing. And, you know, the moral of this, as I said, is, you know, we must have to avoid all sin and all appearance of sin and all doubtful, shady situations that put us in a light, which isn't good. The principal elements involved in the slander affair, Mistah ibn Asafa, Hassan ibn Sabit, and Hamna ibn Jash were flogged 80 lashes. And that was the sentence that Allah subhanahu wa gave to anyone who accuses a woman of adultery without four witnesses. Uh, they are beaten 80, 80 lashes. In fact, there is a hadith that says even um, if three witnesses testify to an act of adultery, and the fourth one says, well, I saw her with him, but I don't know for sure, those are all be- those three are all beaten 80 lashes. So, uh, accusing someone of that is not something that's done lightly at all. As for the man who took the principal part, Abdullah bin Obey, he was not flogged, either because the corporal punishment commutes his punishment in stories for the here- in the hereafter, and he does not deserve this merit, or for the same public interest for which he was not killed previously. He, moreover, became the butt of repro- reproach and humiliation amongst his people after his real intentions had been exposed to all the public. Now, which he was a slander and a, a troublemaker. Almost a month later, the Prophet were and Omar ibn Khattab were engaged in the following talk. Don't you see, Omar, if I had had him, Abdullah ibn Obey, killed, a large number of dignitaries would have furiously hastened to fight for him. Now, on the contrary, if I ask them to kill him, they will do so out of their own free will. Omar replied, I swear by Allah that the Prophet's judgment is much more sound than mine. Okay, two minutes break to questions, contributions, comments. Go off for a few minutes before we start to touch the inshallah. Well, let's see if it holds up. It was really, really good on Friday. Got my hopes up. I see green dots now. Maybe we're okay. Anyway, as I was saying, I was watching this, uh, you know, 5,000 uh, Singaporeans uh, going to this dust every week. And this man they call the Mufti was probably uh, 30 or less years old. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful, beautiful scene. And I'm not sure if he was speaking Arabic or Singaporean or whatever they speak or both, but he was definitely reading from an Arabic book. And then they showed a close-up of several of the people in attendance. And uh, uh, they had this Arabic book of fiqh, and uh, they were reading the Arabic and writing some notes in the margin. And, uh, mashallah, I just thought this was very an amazing sight. And uh, you know, it made me feel sad for us uh, here and in other places where... Uh, we never reflect uh, that level of commitment, and there are so many things that you know, divide us one from another. And then I was reading the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in a book about uh, the best companion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, that the dearest and dearest of friends on that day, that day of Qiyamah, they will be the bitterest of enemies except for the people of Taqwa. And this is part of the warning of the Quran and the Sunnah about Jalisa Su'ah, about choosing your friends very carefully and choosing who you pick, who you sit with, because the word used with Jalis means somebody you're just sitting with very carefully. As Allah, as the Prophet, والسلام, said uh, about the, told the people um, that let there not be, uh, I don't know if I get this exactly right, in your house anyone but a believer, and let no one eat your food but taqi. Let no one consume your food but a person of taqwa. And scholars talked about this hadith and said that this is clearly talking about 
the food of invitation, not the food of sadaqah. Meaning the person that you, for example, are having your house or that you invite for food. And the proof of that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in several ayahs, uh, among them, وَيُطَعِمُونَ طَعَامَ عَلَىٰ حُبِّهِ مِسْكِينًا وَيَتِينًا وَأَسِيرًا Allah spoke about the believers saying that while they're in this life, they gave in, of food and they fed people. And he mentioned the poor, the orphan, and the prisoner. And it's well known that the prisoner in the time, in, at that time, was the mushrik. These were the prisoners of war. And so, sadaqah can be to anyone, Muslim or non-Muslim. Therefore, when the Prophet wasallam said, let no one eat your food but a person of taqwa, he's not speaking about food that's given in sadaqah to a needy person. He's talking about the food of invitation or the food of social interaction. So this takes it now to another level that um, the Prophet is telling us even among the Muslims, we should choose carefully uh, who is our jalis, who is our sitting mate, and who is our sahib, who is our companion, and who is our uh, friend among the Muslims. And the Prophet ﷺ explained this in another hadith, which you've probably heard before, in which he said that the analogy of a good companion, of a good friend, a pious, righteous friend, is like a seller of musk. And the analogy of a bad companion or a bad sitting partner is like one blowing on a bellows to stoke a fire. And then he explained it by saying, as for the seller of musk, either he's going to give you a sample or you're going to buy some of it from him or at the very least you're going to smell a pleasant smell as he goes by. And as for the one who's blowing on the bellows, either he's going to set your clothing on fire or burn you or at the very least, you're going to smell an unpleasant smell. And that's the example of how we choose our friends. And when it comes to us in uh, minority situations, I'm not going to say America, because I just remembered we have people from Germany and Iceland maybe might be here right now. Uh, when it comes to living in minority situations, this becomes very critical for us, number one, and even more so for our children, number two. And this leads us to some concern that if we cannot implement this for ourselves and our children, then we are in an untenable situation. We're in a situation which is unacceptable Islamically. Uh, maybe in some cases we can do it ourselves. We as adults, you know, we choose uh, who we associate with according to these hadith and, this, and the warning found in the verse of this Quran that when we don't provide something similar for our children, than what they find in their school and in the neighbors and available to them is almost entirely kafir, then we have failed our children in this regard. And this brings us to a hadith which you may have heard uh, bandied about a lot lately. And that hadith is the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who said, أَنَا بَرِيءٌ مِنْ مَا عَاشَ وَمِنْ مَا أَقَامَ بَيْنَ ظَهْرَانِ الْمُشْرِكِينَ I, the Prophet ﷺ said, I am innocent of he who establishes his domicile between the backs of the kuffar. And he explained the definition of that by saying that their fires should not be able to see one another. In other words, Muslims should live in such a way that there's a fire built outside their house and the house of all their neighbors that they could not see the fire of anyone but a Muslim. Now, some people have been quoting this hadith recently and saying, you know, it's haram for Muslims to live in non-Muslim countries and they all have to make hijrah immediately and move to a Muslim land. This interpretation of this hadith or this understanding that this is the ruling of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is problematic in two ways. It's problematic on both sides. It's problematic in the sense of uh, the number of people involved you know, there are, I don't know how many, maybe hundreds of millions of Muslims in India. They are a Muslim minority. There's no place where they could go. There's no place where all of them could go. And even the minorities around the world and the rest of the countries, it's really not even physically possible uh, for this to be uh, done. Therefore, it could not be an obligation, an absolute ruling of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
um, due to that fact. The second problem, of course, is the destination. I mean, the hijrah of a Muslim, inshallah, is a general meaning and a specific meaning. The general meaning is moving away from what Allah has forbidden and going to what Allah has commanded. And the specific meaning is, well, there's two specific meanings. The first one was the hijrah instituted by the Prophet, in which Muslims were commanded to leave all of the uh, non-Islamicized non areas of Al-Jazeera, of the Arabian Peninsula, and go to Medina. And this was an absolute obligation. It was such an absolute obligation that there was a period of time when there, it was legislated by Allah in the Quran that there is no inheritance between a Muslim who has made hijrah to Medina and a Muslim who has held back and not made the hijrah. That was later rescinded when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that those related are closest to one another and the inheritance was restored in that case. And the second half of the specific meaning is every other hijrah that compares to that one where a Muslim finds that he cannot abide and cannot practice his, his Islam where he's living and moves to where he can practice his Islam. And this is a type of hijrah which is obligatory. But by setting our bar too high and then saying, well, here the hadith says this, but we can't do it, so let's turn our back on the hadith, uh, is not a correct approach. Because the Prophet, Aisatul is talking about homes. He's talking about domiciles. And he said he is innocent. And that's a very severe form of prohibition, a very severe form of rebuke. He is innocent of the one who goes to live amongst the disbelievers. So this hadith it still must be applied to the extent that we're able to apply it. And then that brings us to our situation, especially in America, I don't know about other countries, where we appear to be practicing just the opposite. If you go to any American city, you'll find the Muslims scattered far and wide. And basically this is because uh, they're using the criterion of uh, what people here call the American dream uh, to decide where they're going to live. So if they get into a certain bracket or so to speak and they have enough money to live in the luxurious part of town where all the rich people live, uh, it's very seldom that one will not do that. So they, they're using the wrong standard and so they go to live, you know, far from the masjid, uh, far from other Muslims and then try to raise these poor Muslim children in this environment. But when they step out of their house, they see nothing but kufar. So, what we discussed yesterday in Bakersfield, in the masjid there, is that uh, it's time for us in countries like this to realize that um, we have built the masjid, alhamdulillah. Uh, when Muslims came here, they, 30, 40 years ago, Muslims had nothing. Uh, the Americans who had taken jihad for the most part were in one or the other crazy kind of cult, and the Muslims who came from other countries were for the most part, named Mike and Roy and Joe and had simply disappeared into the landscape. And alhamdulillah, over these years, you know, we've built all these masajid and we've shown that we can do that, mashallah. But are these really masajid or are they just Islamic churches? Because the difference between, you know, a church, at least some of them, and a masjid is that the masjid is the center of the lives of the Muslims. It is, it is their focal point. It is um, where they come together. It is where they accomplish things. It is where they plan and strategize. And where they do what is upon them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do. So in the time of the Prophet, even things like jihad were planned and strategized in the masjid. We, living as Muslim minorities, clearly have many obligations. Obligations of da'wah. Obligations of example. Uh, and this is... Uh, a, a, a masjid should be the center of all these kinds of things. A church, on the other hand, for m many of the Christians, is what we have made our masjid. It's a place where you go when you're ready to go, and you spend your time there, and then you go back. And you go back, the rest of your life uh, is nobody's business. It's not necessarily connected to the masjid. Uh, it's your privacy. And uh, we have become very much like, and I won't say just the Christians, but rather the worst of the Christians, because there are actually many churches that are more like the masjid than some of the masajid, where the people take it very seriously, and they're there three, four times a week, and they're 
they are taking their their particular mission very seriously. So uh, really all of us everywhere living as Muslim minorities who aren't already living like this, there may be cases where people live like this, we need to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with regard to this hadith. And we need to fear the rejection of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who has said in no uncertain terms that he has no relation to anyone who chooses to live like this. We're not talking about one who had no choice or found himself in this situation. But we're talking about one who chooses to live like this. And as a group, at least in America, we clearly do choose to live like that. Because if you look at any city, you see the Chinese come there, they automatically live next to the other Chinese, most of them. The Koreans come, they live with the, with the Koreans. And uh, every nationality does this except us. If you go to New York, for example, you can go through a certain part of uh, um, Lower Manhattan, I think it's called, or Upper Manhattan, I don't know which one it is, and you'll see, uh, you know, the Jewish area, and Little Italy, and uh, Chinatown, and people, you know, living with each other and preserving their culture. And we, alhamdulillah, we have the guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have the best message. And somehow, we seem to be just too knuckle-headed to understand this very basic thing, which is not, you know, like the Chinese or the Koreans or someone else does it just out of instinct and wanting to be with what's familiar, but it's actually a command of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that even if for whatever reasons uh, we're living as minorities in a Catholic country, we have no business putting ourselves, let alone our children, in this predicament of just being surrounded by non-Muslims. So every city in America, to the extent Muslims even live in these cities or should, uh, needs to have a plan. You know, how can Muslims uh, gravitate toward one another? How can they, for example, uh, take over, if you were, uh, a neighborhood or an area by, by focus uh, moving to that area? Uh, preferably around the masjid. This, this is very basic uh, Islam, and yet it sounds strange when people talk about it because there seems to be so few people uh, even thinking about this very critical issue. Uh, in this country, in America, we see, uh, you know, by and large, uh, failing uh, with children. Muslims failing with their children because they don't grow up in an Islamic society in the least. I'm not saying we can produce a perfect Islamic society, you know, in the midst of America, but we definitely could go a long ways toward that. Uh, picture a Chinese child that grows up in Chinatown. He knows what it means to be Chinese. He hears Chinese all the time, and his food is all around him, the signs are all written in Chinese. He doesn't have any doubts about what being Chinese is. And we owe at least this uh, to our children living in this country that they can step out of their house and see the neighbor kids, Muslims like them, and, and go to a masjid nearby and see the rest of their community and at least give them a better chance than they're receiving now, inshallah, to uh, hold fast to this religion. And um, I just wanted to share that. I'm going to leave a few minutes in case anybody has any comments or uh, questions about anything that was said. Jazakumullah khair and salatakum. Assalamu alaikum. What's the meaning of Bayridge for Norwegian? Um, that's where the Norwegian uh, people moved to uh, when they came over in uh, New York City. It is now mostly uh, Arab uh, background now. Alhamdulillah. And uh, we have question Dearborn, we also have that. But, uh, you know, it would be nice, inshallah, if we move beyond uh, Arab and start having, you know, ourselves coming together as Muslims. Uh, because if we look at the, uh, the, 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 the Sahaba before Islam, the, if we look at the Jahiliyyah in Arabia, uh, there was no identity but tribal. And tribal was something over which people fought and killed and enslaved one another and looted and, and did all kinds of things. And uh, two people from neighboring tribes could uh, you know, look just like each other and talk almost like each other, but yet regard the other one as absolutely foreign. And alhamdulillah... Uh, Islam came, and uh, absolutely, these people became one. Not immediately, of course. There was little looks here and there of the Jahiliyyah trying to raise its ugly head. But uh, when the Muslims migrated to Medina, they wrote down in the Mithaq, in the, in the contract, the multi, uh, multi, what do you call it, multicultural 
constitution of Medina, which brought together Muslim and Mushrik and Jew, and gave each one of them their rights. But in this Mithaq, it was written, Al-Mu'minuna Ummatun Min Dunin Nas. The believers are a single nation, apart from all other peoples. And this is critical. But over these 1400 years, you know, we Muslims have kind of drifted back. Alhamdulillah, Islam is still there in its uh, Sha'ir, you know, in the Salah and the beliefs and reading the Quran. But in, a, in another sense, we have drifted back to the nationalities. And America is a great sort of uh, experiment. It's a great sort of uh, exposing of our reality. And we find that, you know, in this country still, uh, basically each nationality is more comfortable with its own. You know, Americans are more comfortable with each other. Uh, Yemenis with Yemenis, Palestinians with Palestinians, etc. And we really have to, you know, start over uh, having an actual cultural identity, which is Islam. Which, you know, means, first and foremost, in my belief, living next to one another. This, this, I don't think this is the last step. I think this is the first step that we should simply obey and fear Allah in this command of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that the way many of us are living is haram. And our Prophet has rejected us and declared his innocence of us, innocence of us when we continue to live like that. So starting from that, and then, you know, weeding out, uh, what is, what is, has evolved culturally but is not correct Islamically. And instilling in ourselves and in each other, our children, all the adab, uh, of Islam. So that, you know, visiting a sick person isn't just a hadith you read in the book, but it's something that everybody practices. Uh, paying zakah and giving sadaqah on that things you read in the book. It's something that's happening all around you, inshallah ta'ala. This is, this is what I'm speaking about. And uh, I think this, this era of masajid is over, alhamdulillah. It's finished. And we need to see what's next. We need to understand, you know, what is our, A, what is our mission in these lands? Uh, B, what is our justification before Allah for being here in the first place? You know, if we're just here for the good jobs and the good houses, then we have no right to be here. We have no permission to be here before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And how can we uh, perform, how can we fulfill our duties in terms of giving an example to the kuffar around us, in terms of uh, being active in the da'wah. And again, most da'wah is example. That is the core and that is the essence of da'wah is showing the example to the people around us. And that's our current state is very much against that. And uh, that was a little too long, I'm sorry.